0: Short passage this morning. If you don't have your Bible or have a Bible, uh, you can follow the text there in the bulletin, Matthew chapter 28. And I, I do feel behind, but I, I feel like I've at least need once to say Happy New Year to you. This is my first time back up, and even though it's the third Sunday of the new year, this is my first time to get back up after being away. And I'd like to publicly say thanks to Jake for handling the ministry of the word and you know just to give god glory for something else something that we prayed about as we looked and prayed and searched for an assistant pastor with someone that that we could trust with people and that we could trust to open god's word with our church and i think that god has has answered that i think <laughs> that but we're monitoring it week by week no that that, that didn't sound like a strong bit of confidence I, i'm i'm very confident god answered those prayers but um, no, thank you, and thank you for your treatment of that parable. What I like to do the first Sunday that I get back in a new year is to, to take us to some sort of a back-to-square-one passage, whether it's a, a back-to-square-one, what does it mean to know God, or back-to-square-one, what does it mean to, to follow Him and believe Him, or, back to square one, what does it mean for our church to be about what it's supposed to be about? And so, with, with, with that agenda, what I want to look at this morning is the passage that has been dubbed, it's not called this in, in the Bible, but it's been dubbed the Great Commission. <clears throat> and that's not so much the Great Commission to individuals. It is the Great Commission of the church, to the church, Collectively. Now, let me say this before I read the passage. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, tremendous amounts of overlap, obviously, but they have nuances. And some of the nuance comes from the fact that scholars have recognized, and not just scholars, but just Bible readers over the centuries, that these, that these Gospels were written with different audiences in mind. They're good for anyone But they were written with particular audiences in mind. And it's it's typically agreed that the Gospel of Matthew is written for a primarily Jewish audience. Now, again, we're not looking at the whole book. We're coming to the very end of it, just a, a handful of verses. But think about this. To Matthew's primary audience, ethnically Jewish, a story that would be ingrained in them. That whatever other Bible knowledge they didn't have, something that would be in their bones was the account of God's people being released in the Exodus from their slavery in Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was just meat and potatoes of Judaism. And what you get at Mount Sinai, the people could not come up on the mountain, but they come to the base of the mountain. Moses really goes up and represents them to God and brings His message back to them. But at Mount Sinai, what you first have is God saying who he is from the mountain then what he wants them to do and that order is really important for understanding the rest of the Bible he doesn't come and say now if you keep these commands if you do everything I'm listening then I'll be your God and then I'll let you out of Egypt first he says I am present tense the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery therefore have no other gods before me and there comes the law To this Jewish audience, this gospel ends with one who is fully man, but fully God. Fully God. Just as much God as God manifesting Himself at Mount Sinai. Calling His people to a mountain. And on this mountain, He first says, here's who I am. And then He says, here's what I want you to do. Matthew chapter 28 Beginning in verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you know that to... to, Many in this room, these are somewhat familiar words. Maybe they're very familiar words. To some, this may be a first exposure to any of this. And Father, what we want is that whether we come and and our problem is just lack of familiarity with, with the Bible, or what you are like, or what it means to believe in you and follow you, or whether the problem is that we have received so much teaching that we're not teachable, and that we believe that our cups are full. We pray that in in whatever predicament we come, that you would give us ears to hear and feed us from your own hand as a shepherd feeding sheep. And we ask for you to do this right now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is, this is a passage that's called the Great Commission. It really is the marching orders to the church from, uh, from the resurrected Christ. And, you know, the, the temptation for a preacher at this point is just to rush headlong into saying, okay, so what is, the, what is the mission? What is the obligation? And to unpack it and say, so that's what we're supposed to do. Let's go do it. And to bypass that the way this comes to us is in the context of the end of this gospel. With real people, real imperfect people being given the commission. And so I don't want to bypass that. And I I feel pressed for time to get all this in. But I have prayed that what we need to hear, God's going to let us hear. So here's what I want to look at. First, the commissioned, then the commissioner, then the commission. The commissioned, the people receiving it, the commissioner, and then the commission itself. Now, first, the commissioned. Look in verse 16. And let me just read the verse. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, again, this is the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been crucified and he has risen from the dead. This comes after those events. But really, you need to have read the whole book to feel how how poignant verse sixteen is. Because this is the, the first and the only time in the whole book of Matthew that you have the expression, the eleven disciples. Almost ten different times in that book it's the twelve, the twelve, the twelve, the twelve, and here at the very end it says, Now the eleven disciples. How did that happen? And a lot of you know the story that one of the apostles, when it says the disciples, it means the apostles, Judas Iscariot, fulfilling Jesus' predictions, even fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, he betrayed Jesus Christ. And after he did it, he was overcome with a sense of grief and sorrow. What did he do with his sense of grief and sorrow? He handled it himself. How did he handle it himself? He committed suicide. So there's 11 disciples. Now, it says that, and it says that that these 11 who are left, they go to this mountain in Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them to go. Now, that's poignant. Why is it so poignant? When did Jesus direct them to go to this mountain in Galilee? Two chapters back... In Matthew 26, Jesus told them to do this in a context. What's the context? It's when he's telling them that tonight, this is the night in which he's arrested, all of you are going to abandon me. Now, when we think about disciples, the apostles, letting Jesus down or denying him or fleeing from him or letting him down, we tend to think of either Judas Iscariot, sort of the ultimate, or even Peter denying him. But the prediction from Jesus, which came true, was all of you tonight are going to leave me, are going to forsake me. But after I die, and after I rise again, and even up to that point, they did not understand what that meant, and we would not have either. After I rise again, I want you to meet me at this point in Galilee. And then just a few verses before this in Matthew 28, when some women... The first witnesses to the resurrection, when they come to the tomb, they're told by an angel, tell the brothers, meaning the apostles, meet him in Galilee. Now think about that. Peter gave just about as robust a betrayal of Jesus as Judas Iscariot himself. He is being told, go meet Jesus. Why? Why? It is the mercy of God. It's not because He is a better man. It is the mercy of God. And the answer to His denial and His grief and His sorrow is, Go to Jesus where He told you to meet Him. Alright, so they go to the mountain. and you would think, alright, so even after all the things they said wrong, did wrong, handled wrongly, Jesus has died like He said He would. Jesus has risen from the dead. We are used to that. They are not. He is risen from the dead. So when they see Him, and He's right there waiting on them, and He's not dead, that takes away all the misgivings, right? Verse 17. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Or you might could translate that, some hesitated. Now, that phrase is the lead-in to the Great Commission. And I want you to think about a couple of things. First off, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I hope just even that little phrase encourages you about the historic reliability of the gospel accounts. That these accounts are historically trustworthy. Because if these were man-made documents written by early leaders of the church you know, to grab power, and they've got an agenda to get you to believe in Jesus and that you can only get to God through Jesus and you've got to do that through the church and so it's a power grab. If that was the, if that was the case, if these were man-made documents, would you ever write that? That after proof, after proof, after proof, after proof that knuckle-headedness is still present. That buffoonery is still present. But Matthew, who by the way is one of them, he writes it because it's true. Because he's being honest about what happened. Now, that's one thing. But the second thing is this, and I said this before we started worship. We could say this about the Holy Catholic Church around the world. But I want to even say it specifically about our congregation, downtown Presbyterian Church. When we come together in this assembly, and we're the church all through the week, but this is the, the ecclesia, the assembly. This is our one-time large group event of the week. When we come together, we are a group of people who worship Jesus. We've already been doing that this morning. And who are hesitant. And who doubt. Those go on at the same time. We come together and we say, Jesus, I believe that You are the Son of God. I believe that the gospel is true. I believe that He can wash all your sins away. I really do believe He is fully man and fully God at the same time. And, if we were honest, we would say, I wonder if He cares about my work situation. I wonder if He really cares about my singleness. And those are so clashing He is God. He can do anything. The paragon of love. He gave His own life for people who didn't deserve it. And I believe that's true. I celebrate it. I sing it. I wonder if He cares. I wonder if I can trust Him. Now, on the one hand, that is not good. It's not good that we do that. But I hope in some ways this makes you feel like, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe this has been what God's people have been like all through history. Is it good? No. Is it healthy? No. Is it normal? It actually is. To be this mixed bag. But those are the commissioned. So how does a group like that take the gospel around the world? And they took the gospel around the world. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel is spreading like wildfire through the known world. It's because of the commissioner. The commissioner, obviously, is Jesus himself. Think about this. Something that we talk about in here a lot is that God, and I say this in sermons, in Bible studies, and I say it with you one-on-one, God is a both and God. And, and two big words that we, that we use to talk about that, in fact, I'll, I'll talk about this in the foundations class this weekend, is that God is transcendent and God is imminent. Those words are not in the Bible, sort of like the Trinity, but like the word Trinity, it helps us get at things in the Bible. Transcendent. God is the King over all. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he's relational because he doesn't need us. But he comes to us and he pursues us, just as Jake was saying. A beautiful example of this in the Bible is Psalm 113. It's a short little psalm. Maybe you should read it after lunch today. Or dare we say before lunch. Psalm 113. You can read it in a few seconds. But it starts off saying, God is big. He's up over the heavens. The heavens can't contain Him. He's massive. There's no one like Him. He's not created. And then it ends with Him in the dust with a poor man coming alongside Him. And coming alongside a woman struggling with infertility. Big, transcendent, close, imminent. Both of those are in this short passage. Verse 16, what's the the indicative before the imperative? What's the, here's who I am before I tell you what to do? Verse 16, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is not saying, I just became God. He had always been God, but he's saying it is now public, it is now recognized in heaven and on earth that I'm preeminent. And here's what he's saying. I will be sitting at the Father's right hand, and the, and the attention of the departed believers and the angels and the living creatures, whatever those are, it won't just be on God in general, but very specifically the attention and the praise will be on me. And when you read the book of Revelation, that is precisely what you find. And on earth, we could say, in the 21st century, everything that's happening with the transition of power in North Korea is by Jesus' rule, however it transpires. Everything that will happen with the euro in the next month or two, known or unknown, is by His rule. The rude coworker that you experience right now is by His rule. Transcendence and eminence. Because what does He say after the commission? Verse 20. Behold, I'm with you. And I'd never noticed this until getting ready for this sermon, that that is like a bookend at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to round out the other bookend. What's the other bookend? It's when the angel comes to announce to Joseph the birth of Jesus. And what does he say? Behold, your wife's going to have a son. She's a virgin. But Mary's going to have a son. And his name is going to be Emmanuel. God with us. And you get to the end of this gospel, and it's not an angel saying it. But it's the God-man himself saying, Behold... I am with you. And he says, always. This this gets me. He doesn't use the the typical Greek word for always. He uses more like a Hebrew construction. I am with you all the days. One Greek scholar translates it. I am with you the whole of every day. I am with you. I'm right there with you when your heart breaks about people who don't know me and love me. And I'm with you when you don't care. I'm with you when you are so consumed with your to-do list that you have no thought for me or for the lost. I am right there with you. Always. Transcendence. In eminence. So with that in mind, that's a lot of power and that's a lot of nearness. So what's the commission? Because we've got the resources now if he's who he says he is. The commission is what? Let, let me say first what it's not. It's not merely go, win, converts. Very important. It doesn't just say, go, get, get. Decisions for Jesus. The mandate to the leaders of the church is, go make disciples. What is a disciple? And that's something of a technical term in Judea. A disciple is someone who sits at the feet of a rabbi. And it's not just that, yeah, this is my, it's kind of like this is my tutor. I've hired him. They're kind of on a you know, test basis. We'll see how it goes. No, to be a disciple means you sit at the feet of a rabbi and you live on his teaching. And it's not so much that, yeah, I think he's got some good things to say. His take on life becomes your worldview. His take on life equals your worldview. Jesus is not just saying, go get people in other countries to pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus, I need eternal life. I believe in you now. Amen. He's saying, I want, now that you have sat at my feet, and my take on life has become your worldview, but I want um, Athenian disciples. I want Roman disciples. I want Corinthian disciples. I'm down the road, Japanese and Haitian and everything. And lest this go unsaid, and I want women Rabbis did not have women disciples. I want men and women disciples. All the nations around the earth. So, all right, tall order. What characterizes that endeavor? Three things. First off, you go. You go. You're proactive. You do not wait for the nations to come to you, although, ironically, they now are. That's another discussion. But you go to them. Some people have pointed out correctly, the Greek, New Testament's written in Greek. The Greek in this mandate could be translated, as you are going, make disciples. That's true. But let's not give ourselves a pass. None of these 11 men, given their normal schedule, were just going to like end up in India. And I think I've shared with some of you that when I was in seminary, I had a friend from a from India named Yanadas, and one day we were running errands together, and we were driving in the car, and I, and, you know, kind of like wet behind the ears, a little seminary, and I said, yeah, isn't it a tradition that Thomas took the gospel to India? This is like the most cheerful human ever, godly man. He turned to me very seriously and said, Thomas did take the gospel to India. Okay. Note to self, never speak flippantly about Thomas <laughs> to Indian Christians. Okay. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, I mean, he had a strongly held, felt belief that, yeah, Thomas went all the way to India and told us about Jesus. You go outside of where you normally go. And certainly, we're looking around, you know, as I'm going about the life that God has given me, is there a sense that, The people here know Jesus or don't know Jesus. Not to sit in judgment, but to make an honest assessment. But to go places I would never go. To say no to things that I love about my life. To uproot roots that are very important to me. Maybe to cut against the very grain of my sense of place, which is very important to me. To make disciples. Going. Baptizing. Now, we just saw baptisms. We baptize two kinds of people in this church. We baptize the children of believers in Jesus. And we baptize people who are new believers in Jesus Christ. If someone was baptized earlier in their life, but later in life comes to a saving faith in Jesus, we do not re-baptize them. That's a whole nother sermon. That means... Well, let me hold off on that. When you're baptized, whether as a child or as an adult believer, you're brought into a community. What is Jesus saying? To make disciples is not just to make lone ranger Christians. But to make a disciple is to bring someone through belief and then with the sign of baptism into a community. A community with real authority structures and with real doctrinal boundaries, what we would call a local church. That is discipleship. Um, again, I, I've told this story before, but I, it, it's so illustrative of how important this is. In the early 90s, and this is right when I was starting seminary, so I, it, it, it made a real impression on me. When the Iron Curtain had just come down, and in the former Soviet Union, there was this unprecedented openness to gospel ministry. Um, and there was a felt sense that that window has flung open, and it's not going to stay open forever. In the early 90s, churches in the United States sent people and money and Bibles and books and resources to Russia and Eastern Europe like had never happened before. It was unbelievable. And the stories that came back were phenomenal. The conversations, street evangelism, uh, one-on-one evangelism encounters, preaching services, the whole nine yards. And it was a beautiful thing to watch. Long story short... Bottom line, 20 years out, for the most part, it's conceded that most of that was for naught. And the reason is that we went over, in a sense, to win converts. And we did not plant churches. And so we had people who made decisions for Jesus by the thousands and thousands, I don't know how many, but thousands and thousands and thousands And at the end of the day, when we left, their resource was a state church, which was not ideal. To make a disciple is to baptize a person, for a minister to baptize them into a community. That's part of being a disciple. The last thing is this, is teaching them. Teaching them to obey everything I I have commanded you. And I'm with you always. Now think about just a couple of things that he just said, Number one, teach them everything I have commanded you. How long does that take? How long does it take to make a disciple? A lifetime. Some of you in this room have have been Christians for decades. Some of you have known Jesus as your King and your Savior for decades. But you feel in your bones, I don't know a hundredth of what I ought to know. And I don't even live out what I do know. You're being made into a disciple. It, it, it's not just when someone takes you through a book and then, boom, you're a disciple. Or memorize these ten memory verses and then you're a disciple. Boom. Teach them everything I've commanded you. It takes a lifetime. But the beautiful thing is this. Jesus is saying, teach them everything I've commanded you all over the world because wherever you go, my words will be true. My words are not just true in a Judean context. They work in Rome. They work in Athens. And they work in the United States. They work in China. And in the 21st century, which is so technologically to a bizarre degree different than the 1st century, everything I'm saying will be just as true and poignant and accurate and diagnostic. It will land just like it always landed. Don't be embarrassed by any of it. Teach them all of it. That's how you make a disciple. The command is not given to us as individuals. It doesn't say, Brian, <laughs> Mark, did-a-little-null. Elizabeth, did-a-little-null. It, it is given to the apostles. So how is it our commission? They are the first leaders of the church. To be a church is to participate in the mission that was given to them. The church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus, but on the foundation of what? The prophets and the apostles. That mission is to be the mission of downtown Presbyterian Church. Now, I will tell you, full disclosure, I feel frustrated. I feel frustrated because we could unpack this for weeks, and I have like two minutes slays me. Let me throw out one question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that community groups really chew on this and tease this out. And I'm going to hope and I'm going to ask you to pray for God to unpack this in you and Him to unpack it in me as to what this means for me individually. But let's think collectively as a church. Something that was very encouraging to me when I was first approached about moving to Greenville in this new church starting in the downtown was in all the discussions, I never heard some little preference agenda. I never once heard anyone say, well, we really want this kind of music and we don't like the other options that are there, so we're going to start a church with this kind of music. Or we don't like the way uh, other churches are approaching this with children and so we want to do it this way with children, so we want to start a church that does it this way with children. I never once heard that. I think I would have been very scared by that. What I kept hearing was, we want a church that focuses on the downtown, that's located in the downtown, that wants to make the gospel known. And I thought, right on, right on that sounds like the great commission but I want you to think about this a hope of this church is to be a reproducing church I mean the reproduction of churches (coughs) to be a planting church and that as God has been so kind as to give us numeric growth which we should never presume upon but he's been very kind to give that and to continue to give it that as he gives that we don't just want to try to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger but we want to think about wow how can we be a better and better church for the downtown but maybe as God is expanding our circle out that means there's gonna be a new church here and a new church there and is that saying because all the churches in that area stink no It's because if you care about the gospel, if you want the Great Commission to take place, you want new churches to begin. It is the most effective way to make disciples. Slam dunk. But then that raises a question, and it's this. All right, what if I'm a member here, and I've enjoyed being here, and I've flourished being here, but I live further out, and if a new church was planted, that would mean then I'm not here. I'm there. It means that we are up against what drives Sundays for me. Is my Sunday driven by preference and felt comforts? Or is what drives me that I, as a disciple, am being nurtured and fed and equipped? I'm continuing to be made into a disciple But I want to be used as a participant in this grand mission of the church making new disciples all around the world. Our primary execution of the Great Commission is not going to be in Tibet or China. If God lets us have opportunity, great. Our primary execution of the Great Commission will be in the upstate. But that will mean that sometimes some of us Have to cut against the grain of what is easier, of felt preferences, of what is more convenient, to start new things. That might be a new community group or it might be a new church. Are we willing to get on our knees and say, Lord, everything in my comfort level doesn't want to do that, but what will you have me do? Could we get on our knees and say like Isaiah, once we've seen who God is and how it's worth it to say, here I am, send me. I want to ask two other questions and then we're done. Have you ever invited someone that to the best of your knowledge is not a disciple to worship? I, I keep no records. I have no clipboard up here going, okay, 11th week, no, okay, got it. I I wouldn't know how to monitor that. But now that the room is filled up quite a bit, we kind of have a life of our own, we have a space, we have a little bit more staff, we're thinking about what we're going to do in the future, are we now sitting back saying, "Now it feels good? Or are we continuing to think, wow, we must make disciples Maybe this assembly where the gospel is preached is not something to protect a non-Christian from, but to expose him or her to. And we will try to communicate to that person respectfully and not embarrass you, not burn them or burn you. But is the church something we should do an end run around or is it something that we bring the believer or the skeptic to? If you're it's a judgment call guys it may be that with your relationship with that person you go it's not the time but it may be that you're thinking it is the time but it just gives me a knot in my stomach he has all authority in heaven and on earth if that person's meant to come he will incline his or her heart and they will come and then it's up to him Lastly, something that I want to ask you to pray about. Is it a foregone conclusion in our hearts that the people who move who move to another city, who move to another country to make disciples there, is it a foregone conclusion in our minds and hearts that that's always someone else? I think the critical mass of people in this room, your execution of the Great Commission, it will be here. It will be the upstate. It will be downtown. But must it be everybody? Is that all our call? Are we willing to get on our knees and say, (laughs) just as frail and just as mixed a bag as those disciples, and say, am I the one that you want? to go and to make disciples in a place that is unfamiliar to me, and is different to me, could even be dangerous to me, because the good news is that good. Because the good news is that good. I'm sending you home with a lot to pray about. Will you pray about it? Will you pray that we will be a church on mission And that we as individuals will figure out what does that mean for me to participate in the mission given to the apostles, the leaders of the church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say as we're gathered together that We worship you. We worship King Jesus. We do celebrate that he is the center of the praise and attention and honor and glory and blessing in heaven right now. We pray that what we've been doing participates and is connected to that. And we're hesitant. And we doubt. And that doubt and hesitation that manifests itself in our workplace, in an apartment complexes, condos, the streets of our neighborhood, at family gatherings. Have mercy on us. Would you, en- would you enable us to see how our gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit? The preeminence of Jesus, the goodness of the good news, has given us all the resources that we need to go where you would have us go. We say together, here we are. Send us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.